Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Today on a Marvel Movie News special, we are joined by the legendary X-Men writer himself, Chris Claremont, to talk about the recent Dark Phoenix movie as well as FX's upcoming Legion Season 3 premiere. Let's get started. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Marvel Movie News. Excelsior to you, <laughs> our merry Marvelites, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Zach Wilson. We've got Christian Blatt here. Hi, everybody. Uh, we are going to be doing a very special, very fun Tuesday edition of Marvel Movie News because, and I want to welcome him with this sentence, we are joined on Skype by Chris Claremont. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, well, we wanted to start with uh, Dark Phoenix, and uh, you know, you're new to Instagram, and I do think everybody should follow you at Chris Clear Mountain. That's where they can find you. Uh, and uh, on your Instagram, one of your followers asked if you could give the pros and cons for the Dark Phoenix movie, and you said, "Pro, it began. Con, it ended." I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and just kind of summarize your experience watching this film and seeing these situations and characters that you created. You know. 40 years ago play out on the big screen well it's it's complicated the the none of this occurs in a vacuum uh dark phoenix the story weirdly enough actually occurred in a vacuum in the sense that no other marvel series was even then that focused on a female character. No other Marvel series was focused on a tragic ending to a female character or to any character at that sense. I mean, I suppose the closest one could come to it would be the death of Gwen Stacy for Spider-Man, but it was Gwen Stacy, his girlfriend. It wasn't like Spider-Man or had died. Um, Whereas the film, especially in terms of when it was released and what it was released against, ended up as the third leg of what is actually a, a quartet of major Marvel releases this year. Uh, first you had Captain Marvel, then you had Avengers uh, Endgame, then you had Dark Phoenix, and what's coming up uh, this week or next this week for next week for the screening, and I guess the week after or the Friday after Spider Man. So suddenly it's boom, 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 boom instead of a single boom, and that makes any analysis of the film and how it related to the original concept and how it related to the film's original concept significantly more complicated. Uh, that definitely affects it, like what, how you see everything in context. I mean, we, we saw that very clearly, Fox t- saying that they changed the ending, uh, or the, and the, the Dabari and the scrolls around just in response to knowing what was coming in Captain Marvel. Um, with Jean Grey, because she's very much the, the lead of a Dark Phoenix story, is this, is this similar to how Jean Grey exists sort of in your head? Uh, the, like, how, how does Sophie Turner's take on the character reflect how, what, how you see her? Oh, I think Sophie Turner did a spectacular job. I have no problems with, with anything that Sophie or the rest of the cast did. Um, it's just that in... Just sheer weight of numbers. What did X-Men Dark Phoenix have? It had Sophie. And 
what did Avengers have? 28 A-list stars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think the the creative, I mean, the acting budget for that film was greater than the entire budget, even reinforced by the add-on for Dark Phoenix. That is breathtaking in, in terms of both concept and reality. The, the fact is that Simon Kinberg was, I think he started with a vision five years ago of how he, what he wanted to do with this film, not the least of which was his coming to Fox and saying, I, need this, I see this as a two-part film. The first part would be Phoenix. The second part would be Dark Phoenix. So the first part, you would fall in love. I'm this is my presumption. You would be introduced to Jean and Scott and the team. You would fall in love with her as he does. You would, you would sit on the edge of your seat as she went through all the events that, that led her to become Dark Phoenix. And then in Dark, uh, sorry, led her, led her to become Phoenix. And then with the second film, you would encounter Dark Phoenix. So that suddenly ended up being, I mean, this goes back to my challenge to Brian Singer back at the dawn of time when he said <laughs> he was doing X3 and my feeling was, how, how are you going to do it in one film? I mean, are you sure you, you know where you're going here? You need at least two. And they said, no, I can get away with it. And I thought, okay, there you go. Um, well, he might have been able to get away with it, but uh, for me personally, I feel like uh, Brett Ratner did not do the job that Brian Singer would have done on that film. Uh, Zach and I disagree a little bit <laughs> on that movie, uh, but uh, I, I think that uh, you know they they definitely tried to cram too much into that particular film by having Phoenix and also the Cure storyline and all these other moving parts. Well, I think and I think Simon was very much aware of it as as he was working as one of the screenwriters. Um, it's the, it's a very complicated situation. Any film is a very complicated situation. Any adaptation of an existing work is a really complicated situation. And when you add to that, it was not only Fox trying to bring its this saga to an end. It was the end of basically 20 years of Marvel movie making at Fox as Avengers was bringing 10 years of Marvel movie making, the first chapter of Marvel movie making at, at Marvel Disney to an end. You know, it's, it's, it's complicated. And I think the film that Simon ended up making, especially given the the superb talent at his disposal was a very successful, enjoyable, positive, good project. Is it an ideal? No. I mean, if I wanted to be an idealist, I would say, you know, set me and John down. I'll write, the, I'll write the outline of the screenplay. He'll do the storyboards and take it from there. But that's not reality anywhere along the line in, in L.A. Yeah, obviously there are a lot of different decisions that go into adapting anything, uh, especially an epic tale like Dark Phoenix, onto the big screen. Uh, this... let, me, let me put it... Sorry, if I can oh, interrupt. No, go ahead. I've told this story so many times, I figure I'll throw it in one more time. <laughs> in 1988, Stan and I sat down with Jim Cameron to pitch him the X-Men. And... In the course of the meeting, uh, Jim was announced, you know, what Jim said to us was he's pitching a brand new woman director to take care of the movie. As he put it, you haven't seen her film yet, her films yet. It'll be out in a year. But Catherine Bigelow will do this film proud. So you can look at it from the point of view of, from the creator's point of view of holy cow. Imagine an X-Men in 1989, 1990, 
produced and directed by, well, produced by Jim Cameron, directed by Catherine Bigelow, what would that have looked like? Unfortunately, that's not what happened. So you cut ahead 10 years and you see what Lauren Shuler Donner and Brian and that crew did with X-Men. Well, whatever you may feel pro or con about the saga, the the 20 years saga of of the series, one has to step back and wonder if X-Men hadn't hit the, the ball out of the park with its 99-point-something million-dollar opening weekend, which in 2000, no one saw coming. Absolutely no one. I mean, until Fox, when they got the preview uh, reports and instantly threw, like, another few million bucks at Brian to say, juice up the film. <laughs> well, they were expecting it... To- I think back then they were expecting something more along the lines of what they've been getting from Blade uh, and I believe um, The Punisher. They were not expecting a nine-figure opening weekend. Nobody did that back then. Yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing that I, I talk about, you know, to put into context when we've been talking on, on our show and just other places about this, to consider the fact that we, this was even before the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. So, well, but that's I, the whole point. Yeah, Sorry to right. Interrupt. No, exactly. That's what I'm Would there have been a Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie if there hadn't been X-Men? And, Would and, there have been Iron Man if there hadn't been X-Men? You, you have to figure that the, the impact that that film made out of nowhere set the stage for Sony to say, hey, let's give Sam a shot. Let's support him. Let's see what right. he can do. And that certainly, three years later, two years later, gave Brian the, the chops to come back and say, I got Robert Downey Jr. Let's kick ass. And that's where the, the impetus, I suppose, to the, that, that's where the Marvel epic started to crest and what they thought was a wave turned into a tidal wave but I have to ask because I'm totally prejudiced (laughs) would that have happened if not for X-Men No, would it have happened as quickly in the same impact or whatever if not for X-Men so if you look at Dark Phoenix in that context it it's it, it A has a lot of a lot to live up to, but I think in terms of, of the script that Simon wrote and the direction that he did and the star that he cast, they, he, they, he succeeded. He did a hell of a lot. The only problem is the com- if, if Brian had found himself dealing with Iron Man, it would have been as more a much more balance of equals. By the time you got to, to Dark Phoenix, dealing with Marvel is like, hi, I'm a six foot tall guy, and that's, you know, that's uh, Mount Everest. <laughs> yes, it's pretty darn big. It's uh, Giant Man versus Galactus, and uh, the the no, point... <laughs> I you know I would say it's uh, more like Reed Richards versus Galactus. <laughs> That's true. We're shorter. We put up a good fight, but it's still Galactus. <laughs> yeah, and just the the final point I wanted to make on this is that there hadn't been a good Marvel superhero movie before X-Men period. You know, there there was the Captain America movie that was direct-to-video, the, the Roger Corman Fantastic Four, which is more infamous than it is, you know, widely appreciated. Ah, uh, but you're, you're leaving aside the ABC weekly TV version of Captain America filmed in Croatia. Oh, and- yeah. Doctor Strange back in the 70s. I've seen that Doctor <laughs> Strange, yeah. And there, of course, there was the, the Hulk TV series, but, you know, yeah, so... Oh, wait. And wasn't wasn't um, what's his face from Knight Rider starring as Nick Fury? Yes, that that was just a pilot. But yes, uh, David Hasselhoff was David, Nick Hassel, Fury. David Hasselhoff. Yes. Is Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah, so there, but this is just adds to the idea that there were all these misfires and things that weren't right, and this came together at a time where people, I think, really wanted this. You know, we'd gotten mm-hmm. we'd gotten good superhero movies out of DC. You know, and then it was like, well, where are these these Marvel movies? And we finally got it, and. Uh, I think that 
they had such faith in the first X-Men after the fact that I, for me, the second one was always my favorite because they actually spent money on it. You know, they, they were afraid to, to have Hank in the first one because they're like, well, we don't want him to look bad. We don't want to spend the money on, a, on the beast. So uh, let's save him. So uh, that, that, I think that really worked in the second one. So, of course, the real joke was that by the time they, by the time the first one came out, sorry, I just misbuttoned my shirt. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> this is why I wear pullovers. <laughs> Same so, here. The real joke is that in terms of X-Men, Fox had so, was so, had so little faith in the genre, no one was signed to a three-picture deal. Oh. Which turned out to be a problem when you had Ian McKellen going off to do Lord of the Rings yeah. when you had <laughs> Hugh Jackman as the hottest thing in Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, yes, and Halle Berry had just won Best Actress yeah. for um, Monsters <laughs> Ball. So suddenly it was like, oops. Yeah. Uh, so- but, but on the other side of the coin, the, you know, the other thing you had going into this was Sophie coming off – uh, this sort of minor TV series, <laughs> which yeah. you've grown up in. A modest you know, hit. It, it, in terms of timing, having Dark Phoenix come out li- barely a week, two weeks after the last episode of Game of Thrones, the thing that I find so frustrating from a marketing standpoint is that we, I mean, Fox gave it a good shot, but it, it seemed like nobody wanted to, to take that step and say, hey, let's go see what Sophie's doing here, which is a, a disadvantage that one has when a film gets postponed as many times as X-Men did. The buzz on it, for which I'm really pissed about, was so negative and so long-lasting, everybody made their decision a year and a half ago and didn't bother to, to consider changing their mind. Whereas every, cliche as it sounds, everyone, almost everyone I've talked to who has seen it, loves it. But the, after that first weekend, you can't, it's very, very difficult in the modern production environment to change attitudes. Yeah, I mean, just as, as somebody who, as we have to talk about these movies, it's the this, this force to give an opinion and to give a strong opinion, even if you didn't love it you're forced to take an, uh, an extreme side but it's a fun movie it does uh, a decent job adapting what is what is clearly a very difficult to adapt comic book into a film i i wanted to ask you about the the cosmic side of it because this is one of the other i mean it's almost it pales in comparison now that you just had endgame come out but this is a much more cosmic story than any of the other x-men films have taken do you uh, do you think the adaptation was was stronger for going into space for dealing with that, but not going all the way the distance that you had with the? Would you have loved to see the Shi'ar involved in this version of the movie, or was that too was that too far for a big screen adaptation? No, I mean that was the whole point. I think that was why Simon's original pitch was a two film deal. Um, what what can one say? I mean, the whole. Phoenix, the Phoenix saga, the comic, was the first epic intergalactic crossover. Except that we didn't bother crossing over. We just had everybody else on the sidelines saying, what the heck's going on? It was the (laughs) X-Men going across the galaxy and coming face-to-face with the Shi'ar on their own. And winning the first round, and then 30-odd issues later, having to pay the price. Um... The thing, I guess the frustration is, again, it comes out of timing. And it's, you know, Phoenix was the first dynamic alpha woman hero. Everybody before that had been a girl, Marvel girl, uh, Invisible girl. I mean, think of the concept of this. You've got an elderly white guy. He's the hero. And you've got his best friend, who's a pile of rocks. 
And you've got the white kid. <laughs> then you've got his girlfriend, the cute white girl. And, you know, one stretches, one's a pile of rocks, one catches fire, and the girl turns invisible. <laughs> but in 1962 terms, that's a valid analogy. It's a, it, that's a paradigm. But try selling that in 2020. And it's, again, it's a matter of timing. It's a matter of context. The timing and the context of Dark Phoenix, the movie, was about as far removed from the timing and context of the comic as can be imagined. It's, you know, investing three, four years and, oh, God, uh, close to $200 million in a project, how do you, how do you present the end result in a way that gives you the best option of, of re recouping that investment. And none of this takes place in a vacuum, not a commercial vacuum, not a creative vacuum. I think if, if you could step back and look at Captain Marvel, look at Avengers, look at Dark Phoenix, look at Spider-Man as, as individual creative objects, without the marketing, perhaps the, I would hope, my, my hope is that the judgment would be a lot more balanced, that the Dark Phoenix could hold her own with the other four as, as, a, as a valid, exciting, legitimate, dramatic vehicle. But, you know, that's not the way the, the commercial me, uh, film world works. Um, you know, the, the ex, the, this film, Dark Phoenix, did extremely well overseas. Uh, why? Because they saw it for what it was. They didn't see it in this giant context of, ha-ha, Avengers is going to run you over with a bus. <laughs> or, you know, um, it's like, well, we're, we're the little sailboat, and this is the mi million-ton uh, tanker. No matter how, which way you go, it's going to be a problem. But... The thing I come back to, I, I feel I, I must come back to because this is the way it is, is that the script worked, the direction worked, Sophie worked, the other members of the cast worked, uh, Michael Fassbinder worked. Um, you know, all of them were right. They were on it. They were true to the story. They were true to the reality. The the X-Men reality that had been created over the previous four films in this arc. Um, for me as an audience, that, may, that, was, that was good, that was right, that was what it should have been. Um, but as for the rest of it, you know, there you go. Yeah, I, the, it's a great point that the, these, the female characters taking the lead is something that we've been waiting on it's it's it it's time to to see those stories that have been there if not at the forefront in 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 smaller bursts here and there do you think that's part of why mystique took a more positive role in this version of the x-men a lot of people were thrown off by a, who was a, a character as a classic villain took on much more of a heroic story in the such a classic mystique. villain uh <laughs> well i guess she's a villain first in most in most fans minds uh yeah, but most fan, fans' minds weren't the creator. <laughs> that's, that's fair. I, I think people are judging the the name Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I think that the, the, yeah. it's hard to get past the evil. <laughs> that was before my time. Yeah, I know. That's uh, that's like coming in and trying to change the name of Coke or whatever. Uh, yeah, I know that that... Oh, wait, you're implying that Coke is related to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? <laughs> hey, I, I don't know. That's, I think... Well, maybe. Both ruin it's, lives it's, in different it, ways. It's all an analogy for the soda wars. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, I guess I, when I say villain, I mean uh, opponent of the X-Men. Uh, and now she's, she's joining uh, very much with the X-Men in these films. Do you think that that is related to the want for more female X-Men at the forefront of the story? No, I think it's cons actually, solipsistically, it's consistent with my vision of the character from the very beginning. Great. That's, that's what we want to see in these adaptations. Yeah. Well, no, because Mystique, for me, has never been a villain. 
that for the longest period of time, she was a hero. I've done stories where she and Logan were allies, friends, uh, back in the 1930s and 1940s. Uh, the fact that her giving up Rogue to Charles to help her, to help heal her, because Mystique and, and Destiny were the end of their ends of their rope, their end of their ropes, in terms of helping her cope with her ability, uh, demonstrates a maturity, I would like to think, um, a willingness to think outside her box. And, um, you know, she's a, there is more to her than just, this is the hero, this is the villain. In the same way that Magneto has never, for me, been a two-dimensional adversary. He is, always, he, has been, he is a person with a past. He is trying to reconcile the past with his present. But what he's doing from his perspective is not villainy. He's trying to save his people from potential extinction. And the interesting thing about the film, the films, the saga, from beginning to end, is in every, oh, in all of the seminal X-Men films, he has a point. Charles is not going down the right path in dealing with someone like Stryker, in dealing with uh, the federal government, indeed in Dark Phoenix. It's like Magneto saying, I'm on Genosha, this is a cool space, we're not the bad, you know, this is our yeah. guaranteed sanctuary, we're not bothering anybody. Well, that's that changes. Yeah. Charles picks up the phone to say, help, and then, sorry, we're pulling the plug on it. <laughs> yeah. And that Genosha sequence was that, amazing. That suggests to me that, that, as Magneto says to Xavier, all of your actions are fantasy that when push comes to shove, homo sapiens is going to lash out because that's the only thing they know how to do. So if you look at the dynamic of the, those two characters, which one is the villain and which one is the, the, the hero living in a delusional fantasy and bolstering at every three scenes with a good, a good sluggish scotch. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to uh, circle back to the the comics for a moment. Uh, I'll, I've, I've mentioned to you in the past, and I'll tell anyone who listens that for me, the Dark Phoenix Saga from Uncanny X Men 129 to 137 is the greatest comic book story ever told. Uh, but when you think back on it, do you consider it one of the best stories you told, or are there others that come to mind immediately? Like, actually, I prefer this one or that one. Yes. But you don't want to tell us, which is fine. I, uh, uh, no, I mean, it's Dark Phoenix as a mainstream comic story I am very, very proud of. But then three issues later, we had Days of Future Past. Right, yeah. Which, in my mind, carries exactly the same amount, the same impact but instead of doing it in 11 issues, we did it in two. And then you have to look at um, the graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills, uh, which puts the whole conflict in primal, real-world terms with an adversary who, while he is an adversary, he is doing it within the context of, at the same time, he is a man of the cloth. And if there is anyone who doubts that this is sort of a possible, this is too fantastical a thing to happen with that per kind of person, perhaps they should watch uh, a lot of evangelicals on TV. Yeah. I mean, I did 35 years ago, and it scared the daylights out of me, and it hasn't changed. It's just everybody's gotten older. Yeah, as, as a single issue goes for me, God Loves, Man Kills was uh, just sort of a revelation because, you know, as a graphic novel, uh, they were it was a little bit darker than I think the, you know, the monthly book was able to be. So, oh, no, no, no. But see, the whole point is, I, forgive me yet again for interrupting. No, please. That's why you interrupt it's us not a single all the issue. time. <laughs> it's, it's, it, no, I mean, my point with 
with God Loves is if you only have one X-Men to read in your life and you want to know what this is all about, you read God Loves. Yeah. Why? Because it's a story, again, within the context of the time and within the context of my run, it is a story that would not have been told in the in Uncanny yeah. or in X-Men because it to me it has to be standalone because if you just put it amidst the forest of the other books it disappears and i did not i what Weezy Simonson and i set out to do was to do something that was never intended to disappear was never intended to be lost in the shuffle of a monthly title it was a, it was a novel in the truest sense of the term and again, as I said a minute ago, if you only have one X-Men to read, that's the one. Because it tells you everything you need to know about the characters, but it tells you those things about the characters as people. Not as super people, not as superheroes, not as costumes, but as human beings. And it puts them in a context that is as closely as we can manage it, the real world which is why the first scene happens. I would not have done a monthly code book by having the, the, the adverse, by having two kids yeah. murdered and strung up like animals. And that's why the person who finds them is Magneto. Again, the story is about why we're doing what we're doing and who's right and who's wrong. And throughout the whole thing, everybody comes to choices. Stryker comes to a choice, Charlie comes to a choice, Magneto comes to a choice. And at the end, you know, who, or he says, you dare call that thing an animal pointing at Nightcrawler? And Kitty steps out and says, yes. Compared to you, yes. No. He is human, you are not. So the smart-ass Jewish three, you know, thirteen-year-old gets that word. But the final act, the final moment, is a police officer doing what police officers are supposed to do, which is protect the innocent. So you know, for me, that that's something that can I could not. You know, the comics, are, the monthly comics, are governed by the comics code. We have to follow along a certain. Sorry, 86. It's making a primal point. This is a story about racism. And our attempt, our hope, was to try and make it as real as, as raw as possible. With the X-Men, we can do that. With the X-Men at that time, we could do that. The hope with the film God Loves Mar Ma God Loves Men, ah, with the man film kills. Dark Phoenix, yeah is that we were going down that road. And the, the frustration is we got 95% of the way there. Golly, it would have been great to get all the way there, but it wasn't, I mean, again, back in the day, it was me and Brett Anderson and Wheezy, Louise Simonson. Yeah. Just the three of us. That was it. Simon did not have that luxury. He did a wonderful job, but he was responsible to Fox. Fox, by the time the movie came out, was trying to cut the deal with, with Disney. Everybody is looking over everybody's shoulder. And that can't help but make everybody take a breath. Maybe we shouldn't go down this road. Let's try and make it a little better. What can we do to make it more marketable? Again, you know, when you're doing comics, you have so much freedom, so much more freedom than pretty much everybody else. And now you know why I get paid by the word. <laughs> uh, well, I, we could talk about Dark Phoenix for a whole hour more, but I wanted to take away oh, well, an hour. I could go for a couple I, of days. I, yeah, yeah, we could do the rest of the week. But but I wanted to uh, while you're talking about smaller characters in these smaller moments, uh, I think that the the show that the character we were all surprised to see adapted was uh, Legion 
and to see that that story getting told over the course of three years, and you've you've seen the season three premiere. Mm-hmm. Uh, how uh, how do you feel? Like I know you can't give us any any spoilers ahead of Monday's premiere, but how do you feel about the show taking this small character that you that you created that you helped create, uh, and now it's it's blossoming into this one of the most insane shows on television. What do you mean, a small character? <laughs> or, or like, uh, I beg to differ. No, I, I think I think I love the first season. I love the second season more. The third season is just like, holy cow! <laughs> this, I it was wonderful. It is wonderful. Um, you know, it's it is one of the best casts I've seen anywhere. It's some of the best writing I've I've listened to anywhere. Um, Farouk scares the living daylights out of me, and I created him. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's it. My only regret is, apparently, this is the last season. Darn! I mean, I could have, you know, I'd be sitting there waiting for next season. Sure. And yeah. next, and next, <laughs> but um, you know, it's. <sighs> The, it's just wonderful, uh, and there are surprises galore throughout the first the first episode. New new characters, new realities, old realities. It's it's utterly crazy, and yet by the end of the, the episode, it all kind of sort of makes sense. And I I sat there thinking, why do I have to wait three weeks to see what happens next? This isn't fair. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, th- that's always sort of the problem when you get to a, a TV premiere. You have to wait so long to to see so much of it. Uh, what do you think about sort of the the visual representation of uh, Farouk and and David? I mean, I, I think that obviously David doesn't quite strike the same image he did, uh, you know, when he first shows up, you know, when you and Bill Sankiewicz created him in, in New Mutants. But uh, I find that he's a great representation of the character. Basically, he doesn't have the hair. But other than that, I, I oh, think that he's, he's a great... I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't be cocky about that. I, well, that, that sort of... I've seen, no, I mean, having seen some of the stills that have surfaced sure. online... Well, that's kind of what I've wanted to see uh, you know, is, since the show started. I, I would love if one of the realities were animated in the style of you know Bill Sienkiewicz's very unique art style. I, I, that's kind of what I've wanted since the show started, and I, I don't know that we'll get it. But uh, I, personally, I just love – it's a different take on the character. But when you have all these personalities, you know, every, every minute is a different take, really. Well, I – firstly, it's Sienkiewicz. Okay. I, 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 uh, but secondly, <laughs> I think Dan's the, – the most extraordinary thing about Dan's performance is how both Bill and I – firstly, he does look like – I mean the elongated face that Bill drew in the comics is what sort of Legion evolved into. His where we started from is is disconcertingly similar to Dan. Um, the the presentation of Farouk is disconcertingly. It's not as exaggerated as John presented him in the flashback, but John Byrne presented in the flashback where he duels Charlie. Yeah, but. Boy, it works. <laughs> On the other hand, one could argue that Hugh Jackman is a little bit taller than the original visual of of Logan that appeared in the comics. That Halle Berry is a little bit shorter. Yeah. You know, I mean, within film, you have there is a, an element of fluidity, depending on on how alpha a star you can get your hands on. Um, so. I don't have a structural problem with that. Yeah. What I find in terms of the Legion cast is how remarkably true to Bill's and my conceptions, the characters that, that are direct 
for want of a better term, steals from the books are. Um, how wonderfully distinctive the world is it, in terms of it is the United States, it is our world, but, you know, that they have, you've got, um, oh, God, what's this? Uh, the twins. Carrie and Carrie? Yeah, yeah. Where he's working with technology that is clearly as sophisticated, if not more so, than ours, but the hardware is all totally retro. You know, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the aesthetic, the the style, the fashions, you know, I think when it first started, I'm like, wait, is this the 70s? No, they have an iPhone. You know, so it's 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 mind-bending just on that level, which I think is oh. just another way in the show works. It is the equivalent of a comic book. <laughs> it's taking the reality that we know and turning it just a weird bit. And to me, that's wonderful. You don't have to judge it in terms of... Uh, any other show on TV or what you see outside the window of your house, it's familiar, but it's unique. And that's the essence of doing science fiction, of doing fantasy, of doing comics. You know, that you look at the technology that, of the helicarrier, of S.H.I.E.L.D., <laughs> the way Jim Steranko created it. And it's really cool. But I defy anybody to imagine a world where, a contemporary world, where you could build three helicarriers on the Potomac across the river from Washington and nobody notices. Come on. Yeah. So, you know, there, there is a necessary suspension of disbelief. Um, it's, I, I have, you know, I have no problem with it with any of that when it's done right. And for the most part, both as, uh, for what Simon, uh, sorry, for what Kevin does at Marvel, at Marvel studios, as exemplified by the Spider-Man movie, uh, the first one is just as wild and, and exciting as, uh, as what, uh, what Legion is. And I think that's, if I had my own wish as, as a creator, that's the direction to go in, where you see things and it's like, wow, that's our New York, except, you know, I'd be intrigued. I am truly intrigued to see if they're going to do Galactus, what comes out the door, uh, you know, that, that will be unique to the cinema reality that will be somewhat something more than a giant cloud of dust. <laughs> well yes that's uh impressive in its own way as what stan and jack did in ff48 sure 49 christian if i could toss this one in here um because i guess that's the big thing with these with these adaptations it takes something that is it uh approximates what we saw on the page and makes it go to screen so just like david's multiple personalities we haven't seen it's mostly been the the times that we they've used it uh, barring crazy theories that I have that everyone is a personality, a side personality of <laughs> David's, um, that they're not, they're, it's just him in another, with another tone or another accent. Uh, how do you feel about this shift from there being like much more distinct characters living inside of his head? Does it, does it work for you? Is it just like good but different? Well, I'm not sure I've seen distinct characters living inside his head other than when he, I'll I'm, I'm, ask me in eight episodes. Okay. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to season three, so that's definitely something that yeah. we are going to be watching for. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, our time is starting to dwindle, so I did want to move on. As we referenced, David, of course, first appeared in the pages of New Mutants. And I did want to ask you, there's so much speculation about this New Mutants movie that we continue not to see. And I, uh, I'm just wondering, what do you most hope to see from that movie, which as of right now will come out in March of 2020? I hope to see the movie. <laughs> well, there's that too, for sure. I mean, I've, I've, I've heard when it's coming out four times so far. Yeah. It's going back a year and a half, if not two. I'm actually solipsistically much more focused and much more excited about the idea of Bill and me teaming up again to do a 30-page uh, 
80th anniversary New Mutants for Marvel. So, um, you know, that's my focus at this point. Is is that is that something that's in the works? I, I literally asked you that question on Instagram, and you you basically said, "Oh, we hope so," but that's up to Marvel. Is that is that something that has has changed in well, the last yeah, week or well, so? When I when I sorry, I keep interrupting. No, that's okay. <laughs> when I answered on Instagram, we were under an embargo, and then about two days later, they they released the cover. So I don't know if you've seen the cover. I, I have not, but uh, we'll see if Ryan in the booth oh, oh, oh. can find it. Because <laughs> that was exactly what I was hoping for. And uh, this is this is what happens when you have two small children. The, the the important news of the day falls through the cracks. So I didn't even realize that we had this. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, personally, I'm more excited about that than the movie, too, now that you say it. Only because I, I don't... And, you know, it's probably unfair to that movie that it's been moved so much... And, you know, it's like with Dark Phoenix. You started to get a feel that the studio wasn't happy when there's a a lot of reasons to move a movie around. Sometimes you just, you know, again, you have another Game of Thrones actress whose schedule you have to work around for reshoots. So, I mean, the movie might actually, you know, not be what we're told. But uh, uh, at least uh, you and Bill doing a comic, I I know uh, what I can, the level that I can expect from that. Well, again, it comes down to a, a level of trust. Um, Simon's the uh, executive producer. Simon Kinberg's the elected executive producer, so I trust him. Uh, you know, it's it. Uh, I assume it will be as exciting and as powerful as as they can make it. And um, I like to think of it as a really cool Valentine's Day gift. Pre- gift. <laughs> you know, it's if if it is the demon bear, if it is anything. I mean, Bill was on set a lot, and he ha- he thought it was wonderful. But if it's anything akin to the original story, hi, Valentine's gift, we're going to scare the living daylights out of you kids. <laughs> but, um, again, we'll have to wait and see. The, the challenge of doing an adaptation, any adaptation, is that the, cre- the visual and textual creators of of the project in this case me and bill had a very singular specific vision of of what we wanted to happen and how we wanted it to occur that said when i threw bill the plot i knew what i was thinking but whatever what clearly came back on every issue of the, the new mutants was bill's bill Sienkiewicz's unique response to those to, to my plot, to my story, to to the characters. And his unique response goes down very un- weird pathways. That, for, a, for any film visualist to capture that, to embrace it, to encompass it on screen, is asking a heck of a lot. So I guess we'll see. Um, I, I hope that the end result will be as true to what we set out to do as, as humanly possible. But more than that, I hope it will, will bring forth some surprises derived from the creators, from the filmmakers' own instincts and passions, as we've been watching now for two seasons on, on, uh, Legion. It's, the fun of watching Legion for me as audience is sitting there going, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> or holy cow, did we think of that? <laughs> you know, again, this and this takes me back 20 years to sitting there and looking at Hugh Jackman walking across the screen and realizing, oh, geez, that is Wolverine. You know, the, there's this fundamental moment when he and Anna Paquin are driving in his truck and, you know, Anna looks at him and says, looks at his hand, looks at his face and says, does it hurt? And he looks at her and he looks at his hand and he looks ahead of the road and says every time. And when they said that, at the, when those, that moment occurred in the premiere, I'm sorry, I jumped on my feet and yelled, yes! <laughs> <laughs> because Hugh... You know, Hugh and Anna made that moment real. Yeah, it felt very and, human. Well, 
that's what film does. It can take what's written on paper and make it real. And that, that is what I think all of us hope for every time a movie comes along. And quite often we don't get it. But sometimes you not only get it, but you get it going down a road that is totally different from what you had in mind. And yet in a, in a, at the same moment, as enjoyable and as enticing and sometimes much more so, which is legion. And you're left thinking, holy cow, why didn't I think of that? Why? <laughs> because it's just me and Bill. In this case, you've got, you've got the, the director, you've got the writer, you've got the actors. It's a synergy. And the beauty of Legion is it's, it has such a powerful and enjoyable and lasting synergy of its cast and the screenwriter and the director. Um, yeah, that's, that's, you don't get that writing a comic. We get something different, which is also more fun in our way. But from, again, when we're in the audience, it, the, the camera gets reversed and we're going, wow. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. It, this is those introductions that are so fun to watch it's so interesting and the different takes that and that you can go for and x-men has has seen more varied takes i think than any other film franchise and we're maybe looking towards another one now that kevin feige has all of his toys back together uh are, is there anything that you're looking forward to in or any ideas that you have towards a new mcu version of the x-men whenever it eventually comes to the screen Truth? Yes. Please. I want my phone to ring and Kevin to say, come on out, let's talk. Yeah. Well, at the very least, he should talk to you, you know. Ah, but, but see, that, again, that was, that was the ambition, the primal ambition of the meeting with Cameron. You know, right. it's like I've been doing the X-Men then at that point for better, almost 15 years. Right. So my hope was, okay. They're gonna, we're going to do this deal. They'll go, you know, Cameron will film the movie. I'll go out to Hollywood. I'll sit there in the corner taking notes. And maybe when the time comes, fingers crossed, to do a second movie, I'll pitch it. And I'll, you know, make my way up the food chain. That was my hope. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like everyone else. You want to get, you want to be a part of every iteration of these concepts, in my case, these concepts and characters that, that I've worked so hard on and that I invest so much in and that I care for so much. But, you know, things don't always work out <laughs> quite the way uh, one thinks. You just have, if, in which case you have to take a step back, reboot, go a different direction and see what you can come up that's better. Yeah, is there a character that you're that you or a character that you want to see tried again, or one that we haven't gotten to see on the big screen that, that stands out to you? Gambit would be fun. Yeah, we we sort of barely got him in Origins Wolverine, and that Channing Tatum movie was uh, sitting around for a while. Uh, I, you know, well, that's, see, that's that's what irks me because that Channing Tatum movie was my my outline. My pitch. Oh, I didn't I, realize that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. See, that, that's what I mean about you want to get out there <laughs> right. and get your feet in. And every time I get my feet in, I seem to be stepping on quicksand. Well, in terms of storylines, I'd like to see The Brood. And I also feel like – look, I think Ellen Page did a great job as Kitty. I don't think they gave Kitty enough to do. She's literally my favorite character. And I just – I'm hoping that she's done justice at some point. I mean she wasn't even included in the animated series. you know. So I always feel like she's getting slighted. Well – I mean, again, going back to Days of Future Past, um, the problem, the challenge with that is that the original story was set in the present, looking to the future. So the fact that you had Kitty and the X-Men in those days in 1980. 78, yeah, 9, the, the, pre, the present day was 1980 and the future was 2010, which sounds crazy to think about now. Well, yeah, but the problem was in the movie, 
it opened in the future in 2016, oh, right. looking back to 1970. So when you have Kitty as a member of the Mutant Underground in the present day, she's still only 18 years old or thereabouts. Yeah. So that means she's born in the mid 90s. So that makes it highly unlikely that she could tra trade places with herself back in 1970. Right. The, only, the only three characters who are valid in that respect are Charles, who had issues in those days, <laughs> Magneto, who was stuck in the, at the bottom of a hole in the middle of the Pentagon, yeah. oh yes, and Logan. Yeah. The fact that it, Logan was Hugh Jackman didn't, you know, kind of made that an obvious way to go. <laughs> and, you know, if you notice, Mystique didn't exist in the future. Oh mm -hmm. yeah! Oh, that's a great that's a great observation. Yeah, so it had to be him. So, we're... so it you find a way to make the film work within the context of its time. I have a lot of ideas in terms of how I would have made the second, I guess, last trilogy, starting with Days of Future Past and moving ahead to Apocalypse and 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 uh, Dark Phoenix, different from the way it came out, but. I, I'm on the East Coast, and I, you know, I'm not part of that creative synergy. So, I'm like you guys reading a story and thinking, "Wait, why don't they do this?" <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because you're you and I'm me. Um, uh, but the same, but the same thing applies to looking at film. They're them, and I'm me, and I can say anything I like, but I'm not part of that that creative. Public, uh, producing synergy. Well, we're got the chance. That would be a whole different equation. <laughs> we're practically out of time, but I did want to talk about something that you have more control over, which is uh, some of the stories you've written. Now, you recently had a Marvel Presents story uh, that showed up featuring featuring Excalibur, which I thought was a, a nice little reminder of the cross time caper, which I believe ended about thirty years ago in the in in our real time. Uh, are, are you talking are, about the Berlin Wall? The Berlin Wall story. Yeah, uh, that's. That, yeah, I, I, I got it a couple weeks ago, <laughs> so they haven't sent you a copy yet. And uh, I, I, I think that it's, it's interesting, though, because of obviously that being a, you know, a random time travel dimension story. I feel like you can revisit cross time anytime you want to uh, in, the, uh, in the near future. And I, I hope that the occasion presents itself again. I did think that that was a great story, you know, uh, Kurt dealing with the fall of the Berlin Wall, though. So I found that to be, a, a, you know, just a fascinating story crammed into, I believe, 10 pages. Yeah, but that's apparently in terms of, of these kind of stories, I am restricted to my timeline. Right. So, uh, so, but on the other hand, that's 1975 to 1991. So it's not like I don't have a room to play with. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, the, the second one is, um, by me is a, is a Wolverine kitty, Yukio story uh, by myself and Salvador La Roca that literally takes place between panels three and four of, uh, I think, two pages before the end of the six-part Kitty Wolverine miniseries. <laughs> Which is great to hear because that, that is one of my favorite stories, that six-issue. The, you know, the, the Frank Miller Wolverine limited series was great, but I, I love that six-part story. And uh, I've been talking it up on some of our other shows, so I'm glad to hear that there'll be a little, uh, little uh, footnote or, or pro. It's not a footnote. It's, it's, a, it's a primal rev revelation, well, I love that. It's, Do you know when we'll be it able to— It shows a side and reality of Wolverine that has— that hopefully I think will catch everyone by surprise and which has never been hinted about in his previous 30 odd year, 35 years. So oh, that's awesome. Do you know when we'll be, we'll be looking for that to hit shelves? Uh, any minute now. Okay. Yeah. If, if, uh, if they didn't the tell you. The Crawler was May and the Wolverine is June. Okay. So right. great. Any, any week and now. Check your, your local comic book shop for, uh, for Oh wait, there are still local history. comic book shops. There, there's a few. There's a couple. There's there's one. Uh, there's one uh, a, a few blocks from here that Neil Adams owns. So you know, there's a few out there. So you just have to look for them now. Believe it or not, in Burbank, there's like four. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, we live in Burbank. Yeah, there are there are about four or five of them. So uh, you know, it's it's. I don't know. I I don't know if anything's premiering anytime soon. So I may not be out there for a while. 
Well, uh, we, uh, we always appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank you for always being so generous with your time. And if uh, people want to follow you on Instagram, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Chris Clearmountain, they can find you there. And, of course, chrisclaremont.com. Uh, that's, uh, you know, they can find pretty much all your appearances there. And uh, mm-hmm. any other, any other uh, work that you have coming up or questions or concerns can be found there. Uh, thank you so much, as always, Chris. We really appreciate your time. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate having you. Yes, there's our studio audience. There's our studio audience, yeah. Uh, Those of you who joined us live, thank you so much for joining us in the chat. Those of you who are listening to this on the podcast, we will be back at our regular time on Thursday at 1 p.m. with the full slate of news and reactions to, we've got Jessica Jones coming this week, uh, Legion's coming back in a week, so much to talk about. Until then, this has been Marvel Movie News. Thanks for geeking out with us. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. ...necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principal. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principal.